going to let you in on a little something about preaching, which is a sermon. Any, uh, uh, what, what's supposed to take place during a sermon is that you are actually presenting an argument. That, that's what is supposed to happen. And in presenting the argument, the preacher is supposed to uh, research the Word of God to identify using the words of God, the main point that God is trying to make that can then be applied to the people of God. And so there is a proposition is what should happen within a, uh, within a sermon. There, there, there's a proposition and an argument being made that is based and exegeted, as we like to say, out of the scriptures. And so what's taking place here is a sermon, an argument of its own. And the purpose that we have in, um, in this argument, I, uh, I, I would connect to something that actually came up in our uh, discipleship track uh, meeting yesterday. Uh, one of the brothers mentioned that, you know, when God outlines how it is that we're supposed to worship, it isn't just for the purpose of doing it the way that God wants. We're doing it the way that God wants so that we might sin less, so that we might worship him more and worship him more rightly. And so what we see here in this passage today is that there is a sermon that Peter, the apostle Peter, is going to give. And this sermon, when we see it for what it is, we too should be able to see the truths that Peter is proclaiming, the argument that Peter is making, so that ideally in our lives it will help us to realize more clearly who God is, more clearly who we are, so it will then result in us sinning less and that we might glorify God more. Now, as I uh, taught through, as I preached through the gospel According to Mark, you'll probably remember several times I uh, commented on the fact that the apostles, each of these times that they were just um, shooting themselves in the foot, right? They were doing things and you're thinking, these are the chosen ones, you know, these guys that were disregarding children. They were having all this infighting about, hey, who's going to be the greatest, Um, uh, you know, Peter denies Jesus himself. Christ, looking at Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, and one of the comments that I made, one of the characterizations that I made about the apostles at that time is I said, well, we do need to keep in mind that that's the pre-Pentecost apostles. This is before they received the Holy Spirit, and so they just don't seem to get things. They don't understand, even though Jesus is right there standing in front of them, even though they're hearing him preach um, and hearing the messages, and even though he is pulling them aside and giving them individual specialized instructions, they get, they get the insider view uh, where they get to say, hey, what, what was it? Did that mean? And Jesus was telling them, and they still didn't get it, right? What, Jesus, you, you brought food? No, I'm not talking about food. And all of those things. Well, here, we're finally on the other side of Pentecost. It has just occurred, and we get a sermon from Peter, and it's a spirit-filled sermon. 
So we get the positive side of uh, uh, it's that it's that flip side of the um, of the timing of the apostles after they've received the Holy Spirit. And so since he's giving a sermon, that means that he's giving an argument. So what you've got now is you've got me trying to make an argument from the argument that Peter was making at the time. And the argument, the point that Peter was making was based on the accusation that the people that watched everything unfold from Pentecost, he's addressing that and he bases the entirety of his argument as a response to that. So remember in um, that previous there in uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 12, where it says, and all this is after they were speaking uh, in languages that, that everyone could understand. It says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And it says, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. And now we have Peter standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And then he goes on with this address and he is refuting the accusation that they are laying, but he's making a point. And you know what the point is, because the point that he's making in the sermon actually is the point that I was bringing out the last time uh, last week. He was arguing the fact that the gathering of the people and this uniting of the language is not drunkenness, as they were accusing them of, but instead it's what has been prophesied, which is this new covenant. There is a new covenant era. There is a time where everything changes and there's an ingathering of the people, that whole reversal of Babylon that we looked at, and he is saying that now is the time and that Jesus, it's all based on the foundation of the person of Jesus. And so the technique that Peter uses is um, what we can uh, refer to as a, this is that. And you can see this throughout scripture um, there are lots of places where you can look and say, oh, well, this that we're reading here is that which was predicted or what was prophesied about before. We're usually looking at it from the other direction and looking at typology and looking at echoes and looking at um, prophecies and these different things. But what Peter's doing is he's saying, okay, this thing that you're accusing everyone of, this drunkenness, so that you are personally witnessing in front of you, this, this thing that you are witnessing, I'm going to tell you what it is. Because this is that which you have been taught about your whole lives. Remember, the people that he's even talking to are people that have gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They're there to theoretically obey the very law of God and going there to, um, to observe the uh, Feast of Weeks. And so here he is talking to all of these folks from all of these nations under heaven, and he is saying, no, 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 this that you're seeing is that which has been predicted, which has been prophesied. And he does that in two different ways. He does that by pointing to time. He's saying, this is that time. And then he transitions and says, this is that person. And so in the first set of verses, in verses 14 to 21, it talks about this being that time. And then in the subsequent verses, in... Um, 22 to, I don't know, like 36, it's this is that person. 
And you'll notice how it's kind of broken down. You can look at it for yourself in the way that he even addresses them. So in verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. And then if you look down to verse 22, then you'll see where that second argument begins. Men of Israel, hear these words. So you can already see the argument kind of lined up in two different ways. There in the first one, it is a reference to time. And in the second one, it's a reference to a particular person. Now, for those who are, uh, happen to be looking at the, at, the, at the notes there on the back of the bulletin, if I were going to put a little uh, subtitle under there besides this is that time, I would say this is what Joel said. And then when we look at that second part about this is the person, it's this is what David said. So what Peter is doing in his sermon is he's leveraging what is spoken of by Joel to talk about the time, that this is the time. And what he does is later he leverages the prophecy and the writings of David to say Jesus is the person. So based on that framework, look at what takes place. This is why I say his, uh, the beginning here is about this is that time. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So that's about nine o'clock in the morning. And then he transitions and says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then the portion of Joel, this comes from Joel chapter two, and it says, and in the last days it shall be. So his argument right there is an argument based on time. It's tied to the prophet Joel, but it's based on time and in the last days. And the reason that the time piece is important is because all of these references to the last days and to a particular time period are born out of that promise from Genesis 3.15. So Genesis 3 was the fall, and at Genesis 3.15 was the promise after the fall of Adam and Eve that, that God said that uh, one will come from the woman that will crush, that will bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the heel of the son. And so here is this promise from Genesis 3.15 that's hanging out there to take place somewhere in the future of God crushing the head of the serpent and of the serpent bruising the heel of the son. And so with that in mind, that that is the promise that's out there, now follow with me this progression. So back in, and you don't have to turn there, but back in Genesis 49, we have... Um, we have Jacob, basically he's at the end of his life, and Jacob is gathering together his sons. I can get to Genesis 49. And he's gathering together his sons, and in verse 1 it says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Now, in the original language, that also can be interpreted more directly as in the last days. And he actually, this dates all the way back to Jacob, 
gathering his sons together. And if you recall, among his sons, among the tribes of Judah, the one that Jesus is going to come from is the tribe of Uh, or from the tribe, the one that Jesus is going to come from is the tribe of Judah. So then in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10, this is Jacob speaking to Judah, where he says, talking of the last days, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So, Sorry, I started too late. At verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Then it's the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So what's being described here is a warrior king. What Jacob is saying is that in the last days, through Judah, there is going to be somebody that's going to come that's going to be a lion and that is going to rule and essentially is going to crush the head of the serpent. Then going forward to Numbers chapter 24, in Numbers 24, starting at verse 14, it says, and now behold... I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days, which is also inter- which can also be translated in the last days. And then what takes place is Balaam's final oracle. And I'm not going to go through all the details of it, but essentially what happens is is using the evil prophet Balaam, God uses him to then proclaim a Um, a judgment that is going to take place and that it's introducing a warrior king. And it begins, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of him who hears the words of God that knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the visions of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. And it uh, says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of, Jeru- out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And so it's talking about in this oracle the fact that God in the latter days is going to produce someone that is going to crush, that is going to break down the sons of Moab, the, those that are wicked. That's all going to take place in the last days. Then moving forward again to Daniel chapter 2, there is also a reference there. And uh, PJ, just uh, in his preaching through Daniel, I believe already uh, hit this verse. But in Daniel 2, verses 27 and 28, so you'll remember um, King Nebuchadnezzar has his uh, has his vision. He's very confused about it. He's looking for someone to interpret it. Enter Daniel, who's going to interpret that. And then in uh, Daniel 2, verses 27 and 28, it says, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
again, that's, that's to say in the last days. So we see this ongoing prophecies that result or that relate to the last days. And of course, the prophecy that continues from there is the fact that there's going to be a judgment, you know, the statue and all of those things that uh, I know PJ is going to hit later. But then I'll, I'll just go to Daniel 2 verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So that is a descriptor of what's going to happen in the last days. And then just one more reference, which comes from Jeremiah 30. And in Jeremiah 30, the prophet uh, at verse 24, uses more very strong language. The, the fierce anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. So again, we see anger of the Lord. We see that he is going to accomplish this. We have the crushing. We have the shattering. We have the breaking. All of these things are going to happen within the framework of the last days. Now, what's unique to Jeremiah's prophecy is that that prophecy is in Jeremiah chapter 30, and then it's in the very next chapter where it rolls into the new covenant. And in Jeremiah 31, it begins to talk about what will happen and what those last days entail. Some of you are probably familiar with it, but Jeremiah 31, 31, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out. Um, and it goes on through there to describe the characteristics of the new covenant. So what argument I'm trying to make that I believe is the argument that Peter was making at that time is that by using that phrase in the last days, his intent is to import all of that baggage that comes from a promise that was made in Genesis 3.15 and that continues through these prophets in, uh, through Jacob and then in Numbers, and then Daniel, and then Jeremiah, and essentially this is New Covenant language. He is saying this is what God promised. What we are seeing here today, what you are accusing, what you are mocking, is actually the fulfillment of what God has said would take place in the last days, and that the crushing of the head of the serpent and the establishment of his kingdom, this new covenant kingdom, this church age where all of these people will be gathered together and will be sharing one language, that reversal of Babel imagery is taking place here and now. That is this. So now when we go back to Acts chapter 2, we see that there is an additional characteristic of what it is that will take place during these last days. And in Acts 2, verses 17 and 18, this is him still quoting Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out 
my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So we see this characteristic, so it's still tied to the last days, right? So all those other references that I already read about the latter days, the last days, all of those are connected to what Peter is, is using in Joel to say in the last days, all of those things are true, and additionally, in those last days, whenever they are, there will be a pouring out of the Spirit. So do you see that Peter is making the argument, that is what you're looking at right now. He's explaining it to them. He's giving them the biblical theology of all of this Hebrew history that dates back to Genesis and comes to the day that they're standing there and they're mocking and he's saying, no, 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 this that you see is that which the prophets have talked about all the way up to and including Joel who said he will pour out his spirit on his people in those last days. Now the last days are not this open-ended thing. They are bounded by time. So it's starting with, with Pentecost, which he's standing in front of them and saying, okay, starting now that you can hear all this and what you're witnessing, it starts now and it continues until the day of the Lord. And that's what is being referred to right here in verses um, 19 and 20, where it says, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So you see there's this last days that culminates in the day of the Lord. Last days, then there's the day of the Lord, that great and magnificent day. If for those of you that were here and remember when we went through, in fact, it was just over a year ago, uh, we went through Mark chapter 13, where it was um, those questions about the end of the age and about, uh, remember, we were looking at the pronouns when, when Jesus was splitting it out. And he's like, well, these things and then there are those things and the those things had to do with the end of the age. Well, I just want to read a couple of verses from Mark 13 and verse 20, starting at verse 24. So if you remember from that, when Jesus, in describing uh, the, the destruction of the temple, when he used the words in those days, he was talking about at the end, the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day, okay, the final judgment, his second coming, all those terms, all that verbiage is, is associated with the day of the Lord. Now listen to what it says in Mark 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Sound like that great and magnificent day? And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's what will happen at the end of the age on that great day. And so you see the same language being used here in verses 19 and 20 of Acts 2, where it talks about, um, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon to blood. It's the same language. 
And so what he's doing is, in a few words, Peter is giving the entirety of the block of time, starting with right now. They're not drunk. I'm talking to you about what right now. In, you're in, that was talked about. These are the, those last days, and it's going to continue until that great and magnificent day when all of these um, things happen and Christ returns and this, all this, this um, judgment language is put into effect. Based on that time period, the last days until the day of the Lord, you get to verse 20, 21. So this is all new covenant language. And what, how, does, how is he wrapping up that block of time? Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Do you see? That's like a, it's a, like a concluding point or, it's a, or, a, or a climax. It's the main point of what Peter has to say about the last days. He's saying this is when it starts. It's going to go to that point. And as it relates to that time, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That description about that happening, the Spirit being poured out on those people at that particular time is right now. He then transitions into his second argument, starting at verse 22, where he says, men of Israel. Now he starts again, hear these words. And what he does, this is masterful, what Peter does, is he uses their personal experience, their knowledge of what has happened to the person of Jesus right there in their lifetime, in their presence, to make the connection. He uses their personal witness to verify what he is about to say. That's the framework that he's given. So see where it says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, so now we're talking about the person, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See how he's tying it like, hey, as it relates to the person of Jesus, you know who I'm talking about. You saw his signs. You may not have been the guy that drove the stakes into his, 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 his hands, his wrists, but you know that you and the lawless people associated with you are the ones that actually crucified Christ. And, of course, he throws in that all of that falls within the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but that it's them, their connection to that purpose or to that person of Jesus Christ. And then God raised him because the pangs of death could not possibly hold him. And then what he does is he goes on now to use the argument of what it is that David had said before, what David, King David, had prophesied to make the point about this is that person. In other words, this person that you, that you crucified and that God raised, this person is the one that David spoke of. And in verse 25, see, it says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to, she, uh, to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, 
look at what Peter does. He's saying, look, that's the prophecy that, that David gave. And then he immediately goes, okay, well, if David prophesied that um, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, he then says, you realize we know where David is buried. Like, we can go exhume the body. And I'm pretty sure his body saw corruption. That's, he's just laying it out there. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. He got stinky and even the smell has passed. And his tomb is with us to this day. Now, being therefore a prophet, so now he's giving credence to David. So he's saying, okay, I'm not subtracting what he said, what he prophesied. But clearly it doesn't relate to David the person that he was speaking about. He's talking about somebody else. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Which, by the way, if you don't know, Christ is just the Greek term for Messiah. So the Hebrews, in Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. So he's talking about the Messiah. He spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah that he would not abandon to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And then look what he does. This Jesus, see how he did that? Right back when he was tying it to them, directly to them, he said, What verse is it? Oh, there we go. Thank you. 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan foreknowledge of God. Now we get back down and he enters in the prophecy of David. And then he says again that um, this Jesus God raised up and of all that we are all witnesses. He's looping them right back in. You know this to be true. We've all seen it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, you see, he's pulling the, the, the promise that was uh, given in Joel right back into it, and he's connecting the two, the last days, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the person that will not see corruption. We already know. We've all seen Jesus has been raised. He spent 40 days um, in his new body being seen before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, So being therefore exalted at the right hand of the Father and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves, he's back to tying it to them, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then he goes back to David. For David did not ascend into the heavens. And he he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what's taking place here is that same time period of the last days and the day of the Lord, because the last days are inaugurated by Jesus going and sitting at the right hand of the Father. New Covenant, that Jeremiah 31 stuff about everything changing and about the Holy Spirit being poured out is connected to the ascension of Christ and then to Pentecost being poured out, and it's happening right in front of them. And so Peter is saying, those days, the last days are right here where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And how long does thou, do those last days take? Until I make your enemies your footstool. God has not yet fully made Christ's enemies his footstool. That will take place on the day of the Lord, the final judgment. 
Do you see these things are all being captured within there? David is saying, this is that time. He, this person of Jesus, is that person. And then he goes on to proclaim, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. So can you imagine now the weight that he just laid on them? They started with mocking because of of what's going on and the sound that they heard and it drew them all in and they're watching what's taking place. And now Peter lays it on them right between the eyes of everything about this particular timing, about who Jesus is, and that it's you, you, you yourselves crucified. You were the hands that that put the son of god on the cross that buried him and yet the grave the pangs of death could not possibly contain him and what is the only reasonable response to that they were cut to the heart and they said to peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is all about that promise. The apostles in Acts chapter 1 were given the promise of the Holy Spirit, and now Peter is letting all these people know that are being gathered in and that are sharing that common tongue. He's letting them all know, you too, if you repent and believe that you too can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that Joel prophesied that is connected to the last days and, into the, and that's connected to the person of Jesus. For the promise, so now he's, after all that pain of you, 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 what does he do? He brings it back around in verse 39 and says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, I have to take just a second, unfortunately I do, I have to take just a second to say some people misappropriate this verse to somehow turn it into baptizing babies, and it's just not the case. You've been hearing what's going on and leading up to this. This is all about the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is a certification which is a guarantee that this is the new covenant era that all those that repent and believe are gods this is about repentance and belief this i have no reason we have no reason it makes no sense whatsoever to think that any of these people ran home based on what peter said in this one sentence and started baptizing their babies for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are awe who are far off, what does it say? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is about belief. This is about saying, look, I am reassuring you that even though you are the ones that were responsible for the crucifixion, the humiliation of the Son of God, even you have access to salvation through repentance and faith and can therefore publicly recognize 
that transformation that is taking place by participating in baptism. And in fact, that promise is not only for you, that applies to your kids when they also repent and believe. And for all those who are far off, which, who are they? Thank you, Jamie. That's exactly right. That's us. We are the ones that are far off. And it still applies to us today. If you repent and believe, then you too will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Was their generation any more crooked than ours? I really don't think so. They had their own flavor. They had their own cultural nuances to their crookedness. We're just as crooked. This generation is equally as crooked. We, too, need to be saved from this crooked generation. And so we, too, are faced with the same argument that Peter was giving them. That argument applies to us today. First and foremost, of course, is have you repented and believed? This is the truth. This is the reality. It's been, it's been promised from Genesis 3, proclaimed and moved along until this time that Peter is preaching this message, and now that message continues through time to us today, and you are the one that will have to give an answer for whether or not you have repented, believed, have been baptized, and have received the gift, the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. But then also, we realize that what it is that Peter did that that applies to all of us that are God's children is that there is an exhortation. In verse 40 it says, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves. We are to separate ourselves from this crooked generation. We should look different from the rest of this crooked generation. Your co-workers should know that you're different. Your neighbors should know that you're different. You, there's just by virtue of being committed to living a life that honors God and by virtue of the fact that you are a spirit-filled child of God. And then we see in verse 41 this supernatural gift that God applies en masse in this situation. Those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So we, again, I, I made the uh, reference last time that, you know, you have to be careful between prescriptive and descriptive. There's nothing here that's prescriptive other than repent and believe, but we can't recreate something that was going on here and say, see, this is how we're going to get masses of conversions. That's, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to live a consecrated and anointed life and to be prepared and to, be, um, and to take action in speaking and evangelizing about the truth of the scriptures. And then it's up to God to determine how many will receive his word and that then will be baptized. I just want to mention... One last thing is I was thinking about this whole idea of, um, of receiving the Holy Spirit, of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and it actually uh, it comes from John 7, verses 37 to 39, and, and here he's actually, so this predates Jesus fulfilling his entirety of his, his mission. He hasn't been crucified. He hasn't been humiliated yet. Um, But this is what he says, and I also like it because it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, 
let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So if you are a child of God and you have received that promise of the Holy Spirit, then that means that you too can come, that you can have that thirst satisfied, that out of Christ we gain the flowing of the rivers of living water. And then we can, hopefully with gusto when we sing our hymn of proclamation in just a little bit, the final verse in verse 5, it says, We acclaim your life, O Jesus. Now we sing your victory. Sin or hell may seek to seize us, but your conquest keeps us free. Stand in triumph, stand in triumph, worship Christ, the risen King. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for the depth, the complexity, the richness, the continuity of your holy scriptures. We know that from Genesis 3 all the way up to where we are in Acts 2, that it encapsulates thousands of years, dozens of prophecies, that what Peter argues for, what he pronounces, that this is what was happening in front of the eyes of those people, and they were cut to the heart. Lord, may you turn our hearts of stones into hearts of flesh. For any of those that aren't yours, Lord, make them yours, we pray. May they be cut to the heart. May we receive the living water that flows from the sun. And may you be acclaimed, and may we be able to sing with energy, with intent, worship Christ, the risen King. In Jesus' name, amen.